0: Buddy, how is it up there? Where are the Huns? Just go to the front, and you will find out damn quick where they are, and no one will have to show you. Conversation between relieving AEF 5th Division and relieved AEF 80th Division Doughboys near Cunel, France, October 12th, 1918. Hey, folks, welcome to the Battles of the First World War podcast, episode 83, Hard Going. Patreon shout out to listener and Marishal Charles. Charles, thank you so much for your patronage of the BFWWP. And with that, Patreon pitch time, folks. I I think it's been a while. As patrons on Patreon... You will have early access to all new episodes, as well as transcripts and bibliographies for those episodes. Patrons also have other perks, such as extra episodes that have not yet been released. Patrons currently have access to an episode on the battle for Feme and FIMET in the summer of 1918, and episodes covering the Battle of Tannenberg. If this sounds interesting to you, check us out on patreon.com backslash battles of the First World War podcast. Patronage of the BFWWP can begin with as little as a dollar per episode, and it is greatly appreciated. Patrons are only charged when a new episode is released. I believe that's all the admin we have for this episode, so with that... Let's get into the line, folks. As the American attacks continued on the eastern bank of the River Meuse, so too did American efforts continue on the western bank. The AEF First Army simply continued pounding and grinding away at the German army, hoping to achieve the necessary breakthrough to get to the Sedan and Mezieres rail hub. We're going to cover three days in this episode, the 9th, 10th, and 11th of October, and we'll be going left to right by Corps, the 1st, the 5th, the 3rd, and the French 17th. In 1st Corps' sector, the leftmost division, the 77th, had seen a steady advance through the Argonne forest since the relief of now-Lieutenant-Colonel Charles Whittlesey and his so-called Lost Battalion on the 7th. The Metropolitan Division's forward elements were now on La Besogne, a hill in the Argonne almost perfectly between the villages of Grande Arme to the west and Corneille on the eastern edge of the forest. The Germans were steadily pulling out of the Argonne itself. To the right, the 82nd Division fully relieved the 28th Pennsylvania Division. The Dole Boys of the 28th had put in a hell of an effort, forcing their way through the Argonne and up the Air Valley to give battle in such hellish locales as Le tendu and the ruins of Apremont. But now, the 82nd would be the center front of First Corps. It was going to be hard going, while they were giving up the Argonne, the Germans were by no means running away pell mell. It was a grudging, fighting retreat. The 82nd's two frontline units, the 327th and 328th Infantry Regiments, were exhausted. All of us, 327th Commander Colonel Frank Eli said, are more or less gassed and ineffective. The fresh 325th and 326th regiments were inserted into the front line, and from the division's lines east of the Argonne, they would aim northwest and attack into the Argonne itself. The goal was to seize La Besogne. The 327th and 328th regiments would be tasked with taking the village of Corneille. Corneille was taken on the morning of the 9th. The drive into the Argonne saw virtually no fighting, as the Germans there had their orders to unass the AO, in US Army terms. In Cornet, though, the German division commander there did not receive the orders to pull out until after he had launched a counterattack to retake Corne. The Germans came at the village from three sides, and inside the Americans did their best to turn every building into an impromptu fortress. The Germans advanced methodically, fighting house to house. The doughboys fought back wildly. But at a certain point, the remaining captain in charge realized he had no choice but to surrender. He had more wounded men than fighting ones left. 166 Americans surrendered. To the right of the 82nd, the doughboys of the Big Red One, the 1st Division, faced a German counterattack on the village of Fleyville. Despite going against a depleted company of exhausted Americans who were low on ammunition and had no machine guns or grenades left, they still walked into a wall of well-aimed rifle fire. The Germans kept coming forwards towards the village, which the American commander intended to give up when it got too hot. The men in Feldgrau collapsed one after the other as the doughboys, well-trained in rifle marksmanship, shot with hardly any aim. The Germans were getting that close until suddenly they gave up, turned, and ran. On the other part of 1st Division's front, the day's objectives were to capture Hills 272 and 263. Hill 272 is an east west running ridge a couple of kilometers north of Exermont and to the northeast of Flayville. Montrefagne or Hill 240 to the U.S. Army, just to the north of Exermont, was already in American hands. 1st of the 16th Infantry would stage from Hill 240's northern base and attack from there. Elements of the 26th and 28th Infantry Regiments would push past Hill 272 to take Hill 263, which sits to the northeast of Hill 272. It's a lot of numbers, guys. The Germans shelled Hill 240 during the night, but they focused on the woods in front of the hill and so only blasted the trees apart. On the morning of the ninth, the men of the 1st Battalion, 16th Infantry, jumped off into the fog in German machine gun and scattered artillery fire. In a paper for the U.S. Army Infantry School Company Officers' Course for 1924 to 1925, the now-captain Leonard Boyd wrote that, quote, "'Foggy mornings had been numerous,' yet the attack order contemplated no fog, quote. The fog lifted in C Company's area, and the Germans unleashed the wrath of dozens of machine guns on them. Boyd reported that the company commander, most of the non-commissioned officers, and many of the privates became casualties. Where the fog remained, it robbed the German machine gun teams of their fields of fire, allowing doughboys to flank them by sound. This was not a battle of battalions and companies, but rather one of squads maneuvering in the mist to close with and destroy the enemy. Leonard Boyd recounted in his paper the actions of one squad, or rather of two of its members. Quote, the few survivors of the patrol in shell holes to the east of the nest placed rifle and automatic rifle fire on the gun positions. This fire with that of the two machine guns on the flank, drove the machine gunners from their weapons. This success was temporary, as a miniature barrage of Minenwerfer shells falling on the position of the patrol killed and wounded more of the patrol and drove the survivors to the shelter of shell holes. Private Alec Carroll, a little Italian, who was reputed to be the worst shot in the company and one of the bravest men, was in a shell hole with a big American from Wisconsin. Carroll told his partner to get out of the hole and go to another to the right. They had an argument, but the big fellow finally went. As soon as he got up, a machine gunner in the nest got up to his gun and started firing. Carroll took one shot and hit him in the head at a distance of about 200 yards. The big fellow got to his shell hole all right, and then Carol told him to come back. More argument, but he finally got up and hot-footed it back. Another gunner hopped to his gun and started firing. Carol got him, and both were in the shell hole, as at the start. Then the Bosch working the trench mortar opened up and made it hot for them. Carol tried to get the big fellow to move again, but he refused. Carol then jumped out of the shell hole, ran forward, and took cover in another hole. He repeated this a few times, then made a rush for the trench and got there safely. Proceeding up the trench, he came on the lone man working the trench mortar and put him out of commission. He continued up the trench to the end and put two more Bosch out of a job, then started back to the other end. Before he reached the end, he came across his big partner who had followed him and who had cleaned out the other end of the trench. End quote. Private Carroll and his battle buddy were both put in for distinguished service crosses, but only Carroll received one. The top of Hill 272 was reached late that morning of the 9th, around 11 a.m. The Americans dug into the captured German positions on the hill's south slope, which now became the much safer reverse slope in terms of the enemy's reach. To the right, the 28th and 26th regiments pushed into the fog as well, heading into the valley east of Hill 272. After clearing German trenches and bunkers in the valley, D Company, of 1st Battalion, 28th Infantry, led by a young lieutenant named Marvin Stainton, started its way up the slope of Hill 263. A divisional history records that, quote, "...the steep, heavily wooded slope of Hill 263 presented many difficulties." and the men were often compelled to pull themselves up by clinging to the brush and small trees. The hostile defense consisted of dispersed machine guns, which were taken by groups of men who flanked them under the cover of the brush and the deep ravines along the slope." The hill was wrenched from the Germans, but the men later reported that they were cut off for the rest of the afternoon. The Germans shelled the hill, and the doughboys dug in just under the crest on the southern slope. It was here that Sergeant Anthony Vidral found Lieutenant Stainton. Stainton was full of joy when he told Vidral about how he and a squad of seven men had taken 63 Germans prisoner, as well as captured seven machine guns. It was at this moment that, quote, there suddenly was a low whistle, and then a dull crump as a shell coming from the German positions north of Hill 263 cleared the rise and dropped in the middle of the company. Lieutenant Marvin Stainton and two other men nearby were killed instantly. Four others were wounded. Death was ever-present and everywhere, always hungry and never satisfied. Off to the right from the 28th Regiment were the men of the 26th who were also holding Hill 263. As day gave way to night, the Germans continued bombarding the hill and it was reported, quote, that night the hilltop became a seething inferno, end quote. In the center of the American front, the 5th Corps battered away at the German line as well. The 32nd Division went after Cote de Marie, with the 125th Infantry assigned to take the Crescent Moon shaped hill, while taking another hill at the same time. To its right, the 126th Infantry was to attack and capture the village of Romagna sous-Montfaucon, and then continue driving northwest towards the Romagna and Bonteville woods. With the one hundred twenty-sixth infantry, Lieutenant Harold Wall led his men into the morning's dense fog. The Germans gave no resistance until the fog cleared a little later. Now they could see the oncoming doughboys. Like a clap of thunder, the fireworks started, Lieutenant Wohl later recalled. The men of the 126th surged forward regardless of the machine gun fire. Tanks supported the attack, and the men shot and stabbed their way through the German 1st defense line. By late afternoon, they had not yet made it to Cote de Marie, which sits to the north of Gen, and southwest of Romagna. They had dug in on a ridgeline east of the prominent hill. German fire and counterattacks had stymied the American advance. The 125th jumped off into a German counter barrage that came at the worst time. The enemy shells fell right in among the attacking formations, vaporizing or shredding men with every burst. Casualties were enormous. The fog didn't help with directions, but the remaining officers and NCOs reorganized their men on the fly and pushed them forward. The Bois de Valoup directly north of Gen was cleared out, and the Americans pushed their way to the base of Hill 258. By that point, casualties, the fog of weather, and the fog of war had sowed the regiment's survivors with chaos and confusion. The men of the 32nd would have to try again the next day. Shifting right from the 32nd, the soldiers of the 3rd Division took Hill 253 on the 9th. The assaulting troops likely noticed the scores of bloating dead Germans on the northern slope the wrecked tank on the hilltop, and if they happened to be close to the tank, they would also see thousands upon thousands of empty bullet casings. This, of course, was John Barclay's handiwork. German fire and the resulting casualties halted any other progress. In Third Corps sector, Lieutenant General Robert Bullard pushed his exhausted divisions forward even as division commanders asked for relief no, said Bullard when Major General Hines of the 4th Division asked for his men to be pulled from the Bois de Faye. We've got to stay there. We give up nothing. The Ivy Division attacked the Bois de Faye again on the evening of the 9th. The Germans devastated the remnants of the attacking regiments with high explosive shells and gas. The U.S. 47th Regiment gave up on attacking, but the 39th attempted to keep pushing through the foggy, gas-filled dark. A history of the 4th Division, compiled in 1920, titled The 4th Division, Its Services and Achievements in the World War Gathered from the Records of the Division, recorded how the 39th fared that night. Quote, In the failing light and amid the thick underbrush, little could be seen through the goggles of the masks. The shellfire seemed to increase with every passing minute. The roar of heavy shells could be heard coming from the rear. Soon, the darkness in the thick woods became almost impenetrable. The men in the front lines fell. The men behind stumbled over their dead or wounded comrades as they advanced against their invisible enemy. They had nothing to guide them but the sound of their officers' voices. They could not see. They fell over the barbed wire which the Germans had wound low through the underbrush and between the trees. The advance stopped. The word was passed along the line to withdraw, and the men filtered back by ones and twos to the Fond de au Bois from which they had started. The attack had failed." End quote. Between the 3rd and the 4th Divisions was the 80th Division, the Blue Ridge Mountain Boys. These men faced slaughter as well as they came out of the Bois d'Augon and fought through the Madeline Farm Complex and on into some trenches a mile north. Here, the Germans filtered in through gaps in the American lines to wreak havoc on the oncoming men. However, The Americans did the same as three infantry companies broke through the gaps in the German lines and made straight for Kunal Village. Two German battalion staffs got the shock of their lives when dozens of gaunt and dirty doughboys advanced into Kunal, took them all prisoner, and locked them inside the church. Disaster then struck as this roving band of doughboys walked right into an American artillery barrage on the north end of Canal, a bombardment meant to protect from any Germans shifting south. Once the barrage did its dirty work, a detachment of waiting Germans attacked the now-isolated Americans. A brutal firefight in Canal broke out as the doughboys fought their way rearwards. Under cover of darkness, the surviving Americans worked their way back into friendly lines to the south later that night. While it had been a brief success, this was the first time the German third position, the Krimhilde Stellung, had been pierced. You find listeners no doubt clearly, remember, from the first Mers Argonne episodes way back in 2018, that the Krimhilde line was to have been taken on the first day. Of the american offensive it was october 9th and it had just now been broken into for a few hours these were hard exhausting days on the next day october 10th the germans gave up cornet without a fight after so successfully punching the 82nd division's face there the day before No doubt the average German frontkampfer who'd risked his life to retake another bloody French village, was as stunned as the reconquering Americans were. The Germans not only pulled out of Corneille, but they retreated far enough back that the 77th and the 82nd Divisions reached the bend in the Aire River where it turned east-west. The Doughboys reached the now south bank of the river, In front of the 1st Division, the Germans pulled back into positions along the Krimhilde line, generally in the area of Somerhal's village, to the northern edge of the Bois de Romagne, east of that village. The three divisions were bled out, underfed, and beyond bone-tired. The doughboy later said, Physically, we were wrecks. Many of our men could not speak owing to the action of gas on the vocal cords. We were weak, but we're not sick. We were just worn out. 3rd Division took Mamelle Trench and the Bois de Canel on the 10th, but its men, too, were wrecked. The 32nd Division attacked towards Romagna and Hill 258 again, only to see its units decimated by German artillery and endless machine gun fire. In 3rd Corps sector, the 80th Division attacked the Bois de Malamont, a wood to the southwest of Cannel. The first attack failed. The second attack was hit with another friendly artillery barrage, so it failed as well. October 11th saw much of the same. The 82nd division now attacked the next large village north from Corneille, saint Juvent. It was a disaster from the planning to the execution. Upper command officers drew jump off lines that were behind the Germans. And those same officers imagined that the Germans must have kept right on pulling back since they had started. Promised artillery prep and tank support never appeared, so the men were ordered to attack without a barrage. The Germans lit up the oncoming doughboys from as far back as Fleyville. Captain John Taylor watched as German fire dropped young American soldiers all around him. Then the German planes arrived overhead. German planes were flying very low, throwing grenades and ripping up our lines with machine guns, he recalled. Our own planes were again careful not to come out, as usual. The moral effect of the presence of one of our own planes is wonderful. Until, of course, the men see him get away at a breakneck speed when an enemy plane appears on the scene. The men feel that when they take almost impossible chances, walking into machine gun nests, etc., that our planes ought to at least take a little chance. In 5th Corps, both the 32nd and 3rd Divisions attacked with no success. In 3rd Corps, the 80th Division went into reserve. The 4th Division attacked across open ground towards the Bois de Forêt east of Cunnell Village with the typical results. One regiment never really jumped off, while the other took most of the wood while taking hundreds of enemy prisoners. The next morning, the American artillery bombarded them out of the woods in yet another case of deadly friendly fire. The 4th Division was done, although it would be in the line another week and a half. Private Edward Laudenbeck, a 4th Division soldier, wrote in his unauthorized diary, I have never seen so many dead. Here is where it takes willpower to go on and face death. Across the Meuse, the Americans of the 29th Division faced Mulville Farm and the clearing it sat in, and still sits in, by the way, Northeast of Concevoir, nestled in the woods in a wide clearing, Molville Farm and its buildings needed to be cleared of Germans before the 116th Infantry Regiment could move to seize the higher ground of the heights. The Doughboys held the southern and western edges of the farm's clearing. They attacked into the foggy morning of the 11th with no artillery, hoping to surprise the Germans in the area. Perhaps they could cut across the clearing and get to the northern edge before the Germans were the wiser. The Germans were the wiser about it. They lost the farm to the onrushing doughboys, but when the Americans attempted to cross the clearing headed north, the Germans opened up on them from the north and east. The crisscrossing fields of fire mowed down swaths of doughboys. Surviving Americans went to ground. Two more attacks were launched after the fog had lifted. This now brought German artillery crashing down on the clearing and German planes strafing the area for good measure. American casualties were horrific, and these attacks failed as well. While the Germans were employing their concept of elastic defense by giving up ground initially, we must remember that this was the Meuse. That lost ground had to be taken back as there wasn't much of it to retreat from. Or to retreat to, for that matter. In Flanders and Picardy, space could be traded for time and a chance to breathe. But not here, in the Meuse. Every inch of ground mattered. Those rail hubs in Sedan had to be protected at all costs. So the Germans counterattacked constantly. Their infantry counterattacks, wrote Colonel Wise of the 4th Division, though not very heavy in numbers, were extraordinarily vicious. They kept us in a constant flurry of vicious, small dogfights up and down the line, day after day. The relentless artillery was another factor that wore down and broke men's nerves. It takes real men to stand this continual pounding by artillery, Sergeant Major James Block of the 4th Division wrote afterwards. Under such fire and in those surroundings, all the sensationalism, all the heroism is removed. The long, fatiguing days and nights of patient suffering, the continual exposure to miserable weather, such as is found nowhere else on earth, the horribleness of the whole scene, all tended to deaden one's faculties. Men moved about like mere machines. No man could rest in that cold and mud with gunfire for a lullaby. As one by one, sometimes two or three at a time, we saw our pals go west. We resigned ourselves to fate and patiently waited our turn. If the end would come, only quickly when it did come. But no, we linger on, passively enduring what seemed certain death— But it was not the fear of death so much as the fact that we were suffering the tortures of a living death, unable from our support positions to strike back at the foe. The doughboys of the American First Army were at the breaking point. It was difficult to comprehend how massive 28,000 man squared divisions could be rendered combat ineffective within just a few days of entering the MERS front, but it was happening all the time. The AEF was hemorrhaging men. The 1st and 80th divisions were relieved by the 42nd and 5th divisions, respectively. With these changes, new attacks were planned. The Krimhilder had to be broken. Questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate. Contact me at Verdun podcast at gmail.com. Get at me on Twitter at, at ww one podcast Check out the BFWWP website, firstworldwarpodcast.com, for some photos. And check out the Battles of the First World War podcast page on the Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Talk to you again soon. Take care.